The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world. Are you tired of singing the same remix of How Great Is Our God? Are you frustrated with evangelicals who are going to vote for Trump yet again? Well, so are we. Come sit on our pew. Let's have a kiki. I wish we could talk about how, why it looks like Mitch McConnell is on his deathbed, but go ahead. So, so this, is, this is what the funny thing is. This is the funny thing. Mitch McConnell hate black people, and God is turning that man black. <laughs> <laughs> oh that man hand. <laughs> oh his hand. Y'all gonna wake up tomorrow. Mitch McConnell gonna be black and everybody gonna be confused. Oh my. Oh my. I think it's a serious medical issue. I think this man is about to kill himself trying to get this woman to fire him and he's not getting medical treatment or whatever is going on. See, this is why I can't let my faith drive stuff because I'm sitting there like God done sent a plague on this man. <laughs> God, God gonna take his life. <laughs> it's okay because I'm like maybe he'll die before the confirmation. I know this Sad. is bad, David. You're like the most you're like the most holy person in this place. <laughs> but I'm just like hopefully he'll die before the confirmation. See that's what I, I feel like uh Ruth Bader Ginsburg got up there. Well she Jewish. She's up there. Yeah she's yes. Jewish. No no I'm just trying to give the get the right heaven. <laughs> <laughs> she, at least to the right section of heaven. She done got to her Jewish heaven. Ain't she Jewish, Kingsburg? Ain't she Jewish? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm trying to be sensitive. I, I tried to you bap- didn't hit it. I was trying to baptize Bernie Sanders one time, and they said, That man is a Jew. I said, Oh, shit, I can't baptize him. <laughs> Ruth done got up there to the heavenless. And said her Torah, and she said, "I am pleading my case before God, and we need Mitch McConnell to die because my seat shall not be replaced <laughs> until another president is on this throne." Oh my! What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourners Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT. KT. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Pastor Sam. On today's episode, we've got Malcolm's conversation with our brother and new benchmate, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Listen in as they talk about faith, race, and why Jesus should be a source of inspiration for our progressive political agenda. Or a progressive political agenda. The four of us will also talk about our voting strategies and the relationship between one's religious commitments and political perspectives. But before that, we had a debate last week. I said to someone this morning, the debate wasn't as bad as last week, but it wasn't good. And they're like, oh, so it was better than last week. No, that's not what I said. <laughs> or last time. <laughs> no, no. They didn't actually say anything. Basically, it- it was still trash. It was just less yelling. I mean, but it was, for me, it was a lot of the same uh, from the week before, just less talking over each other, less yelling, uh, but uh, especially from Trump. It was, it was still trash for me. I, 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 was, I was getting angry at some point, uh, parts of the debate, because of how much he lied. It was just frustrating. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not watch the debate last week. Thursday night came around. I started drinking early. I ate my Oreos for dinner, and I was in bed by like 9.30. The first debate, (laughs) 
was so bad yes. that I just had no interest yeah. in trying to revisit it. So I, I did not watch last week. I'll be honest. Well, you do need to know one thing if you haven't heard it already. Trump has done the most <laughs> for black people. He's the president who's done the absolute most for black right? people. More than, I think he said, the mm-hmm. only person who had done more was Abraham Lincoln. Maybe. And he said possibly. Possibly, maybe. right. Maybe. 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 The maybe. jury's still out. Maybe. Like slavery. Maybe. <laughs> because, because opportunity zones compared to slavery. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was quite ridiculous. And, like, the fact that he cited Abraham Lincoln, who freed slaves only where he had, like, no power to do so, to let them stay in captivity where he actually was in control. So that's your standard. Trump. Right, right. Okay, that's the standard. In that case, maybe it is about the same. And then Joe Biden even had a little zinger in there. He was like, Abraham Lincoln over here. I said, okay, Uncle Joe, That was my favorite line of the night. It was an interesting conversation and. As I said, I kept getting angry. No, primarily because I felt like uh, Biden wasn't wasn't sharp enough to respond to some of the attacks, or maybe it was his strategy not to. Uh, I got frustrated when Trump attacking keeps attacking Biden's kid, and and I'm like, you know, there's so much, and, and maybe he's rising above the fray, right? Because he refuses to to talk about the the Trump's kids and how the unethical business practices, all of these things. Um, but it was it was just frustrating for me. I, I, this may have been more frustrating than the first one because I felt like for Trump's base, if they walk away saying, see, we told you he was presidential or we told you he could be, you know, this or, or he, you know, he won this debate. And I was just like, this is, this is trash. Yes, like the bar is so, so low right. for white men in general, but for Donald Trump specifically, it's like if you just stand up there and don't say stupid things and don't interrupt folks, then all of a sudden you look presidential. And mm-hmm. all along he's known, I can be a total jackass and a total idiot for the entirety of the election cycle. Two weeks before, I'll shut up, I'll wear a tie, and I'll get coronavirus, and people will think I'm great. <laughs> all the more reason for us to make sure we have voting plans. Have all y'all voted already? Have y'all got your stuff together? I have. I have voted. As most of you know, uh, Georgia is a state that offers early voting um, up until I think the week before the election. And so I've already voted, stood in line about 30 minutes before 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, about a week and a half ago, and cast my ballot. Excellent. You cast it for Trump, right? Whoa. Absolutely <laughs> not. But <laughs> well, he's done so much for the black community, Sam. How could you vote again? <laughs> I would shoot myself in the foot before I voted for Trump. Absolutely not. We voted last week. Uh, Happy to go ahead and get my ballot cast. I I read that this year there's like a 110% increase in voting turnout in the state of Georgia over the 2016 election. Yep. Which I feel like, yeah, already. Wow. I feel like everyone should be happy about that, regardless of your political affiliations. I'm glad that people are involved. I feel like. Hopefully good things will come. I mean, I'm hoping a lot of good things will come from this election, but I'm glad that a lot of people are participating. I'm glad that Georgia is now officially a purple state. Yes. And that it's actually in play this time because our votes have never mattered before. (laughs) Everybody has known we're solidly red. But this year it's making making a big difference. And so I'm excited as well. I think somebody said that we were already like at one fifth of the total number of ballots cast in the the 2016 election. Like not just early voting. Wow. Overall. 
we also voted early. We, um, it was funny. We were driving out and I've always lived in, um, the blacker side of town. And so we, it's in South DeKalb mall. If you're in Atlanta, Georgia, you know where that is, um, over there in Decatur and that's a blacker area of town. So there are typically fewer machines there and a lot more people assigned to that location. And so we have recently moved to an area of town that is, um, much wider and <laughs> and voting in a white neighborhood is a completely different experience. So I was driving down the street and I cut to the left and, it, and uh, my partner, Adriel was like, Oh my gosh, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to South Dakota mall. He was like, no, we going to Agnes Scott, honey. I was like, Oh, that's an early voting location. So we went to Agnes Scott and literally we walked up there and within 10 minutes we were done. It was quite impressive and surprising. And it's just, it, it did frustrate me a bit that we do have these strategies that attempt to discourage people from voting and depending on what neighborhood you're in. I mean, mm-hmm. they had so many machines, like there were empty machines the entire time. Yeah. I took my 13 year old daughter with me. She's voted with me in every president election since she's been alive which That's has awesome. been wonderful yeah train and, up a child and what it, what she loved is that the person said are, are you able to vote i was like no she's got five more years <laughs> she's like yes give yeah, me a ballot, she like, give oh. me a ballot. <laughs> but she stood over me um at the computer and she's like make sure you choose the right one <laughs> I was like, really, I don't, it's not possible that that um i would choose the wrong one but she she checked it and then you can review it again. So I let her review it and she got the sticker and then we were able to uh, turn in my mom's um, absentee ballot because she wasn't going to vote in person. So we all voted on the same day and it was a good, a good, I actually felt a lot of freedom after I voted. I was like, okay, we've done this and I can just participate. So tell me more about that. You said that you felt like it, a sense of freedom. Like, what is that? Yeah, you know, I um, I didn't even realize that I was feeling anxious, but as soon as we left the polling place, I just felt like I could relax. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's important to note, like, because one of the things that is happening right now is there are strategies and tactics being deployed to keep us from voting. <laughs> and they're, yeah. they're there to create a sense of anxiety, to make you feel worried, to make you feel fearful, to make you feel anxious, to make you feel um, a wide array of things. But the ultimate goal is to keep you away from the polls. So if um, anyone is listening and you are feeling anxious, you're feeling worried, you feel like, you know what, I don't want to tend to that. I don't want to do it. I don't, I'm, I'm depressed, whatever it is. One, I want to honor your mental health and say um, that's a valid way to feel and that don't feel ashamed of that. Also, um, do what it takes to get up, get out of bed, and go to the polls because your mental health is at stake. Um, your well-being is at stake. Your wholeness is at stake. Don't let the ads, the phone calls, the text messages deter you from voting. That is what they are designed to do. And ultimately, if we do that, there is this sense of um, freedom that can be present if we are intentional about this act of voting. And really, because I'm feeling more or less anxious now, that's how Jordan and I can go out and participate with Fair Fight Georgia on Election Day. Yeah, because voting is a start, right? Like, I, like I was a person, I'm confession time, I, um, for at least four, five years, was like, I'm not voting. It doesn't matter. I lived, I lived in Tennessee. I lived in Georgia. These are solidly red states, and I didn't feel like my vote counted. And um, what I had to start to realize is, you know, this is only one form of political action. It is not an end in and of itself, but it is one form of political action, and that should open me up to additional actions, right? So you voted now, so there's a sense of freedom where you can engage the process in a very different way that's also going to yield fruit. Yeah, yeah. 
Do any of y'all have plans for election day itself since we've already voted early? Do y'all plan on going out and making sure that folks know their rights and are able to vote on election day itself? I had a conversation with a, uh, an elderly neighbor of mine about a week ago or so. Uh, and I was asking what her voting plan was and, uh, she did not have one. And that sort of made me anxious. And so I, in the course of the conversation, I said, Marilyn, if you would like for me to take you, uh, to our polling place, which is literally right around the corner from our houses, um, let me know and I'll come pick you up and we'll swing over there. And, uh, I, I asked her if she wanted to vote early and interestingly enough, she had some trepidation about that. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people are just skeptical of the process, you know, yeah. it is important to note if you are a senior citizen in Georgia, at least have the right to go to the front of the line. If it's a very long line on election day or mm -hmm. on an early voting day, is that you can right? go at beginning at 9 a.m. I think you don't have to stand in the line. Let them know you're a senior. Let them know even if you have a, a physical disability of some sort, let someone know you will be taken to the front yeah. of the line to cast your ballot. There's no reason to turn yeah. away because of anything at all. Just talk to someone. Yeah. And for the folks who are listening maybe outside of the state of Georgia, like from Alabama, where I'm from, and there is no early voting, I've been encouraging everyone in my family, in my orbit, make sure you have a plan. Be prepared for long lines. Be prepared to wait. Uh, you need to eat before you go. You need to use the restroom before you go. Uh, you need to be prepared to bring the elements. It may be rainy. It may be cold. We're not sure what the weather's going to be like on election day. But make sure you have a plan and stick to that plan. Your vo your voice matters, your vote matters, and we want to make sure that you cast your ballot in this election. That's the word, Pastor Sam. Let the church say amen. Amen. Let the church say amen again. Amen. All right, let's take a quick break. Yeah, I know Pope Francis like the gays now. I heard that this morning. Uh, we were waiting to get into the pool, and the, I was telling him about the podcast, and this guy's like, the Pope... Um, the Pope affirmed civil unions. I said, what did you just say? <laughs> yes, that's what I said. This is so foreign to me. I never expected this to happen in my lifetime. I mean, what's the what's the impetus behind it? So, is you know, it? I think it's me. I uh, have not <laughs> told anyone right. yeah. this story, but when he was first you know, installed as Pope, I went to Rome and I went to an audience with the Pope and he was driving around with his Pope mobile and I was like five feet away from him. He looked at me and he waved and he blessed me and I looked back to him and I blessed him back. <laughs> Just so you know, an audience with the Pope. Is an audience a one-on-one -on -one encounter? Yes, it is. So maybe it wasn't an audience. It was, what, what is it called when he has a showing? <laughs> <laughs> What is it called when he shows himself? Oh, I, like he held court? I don't know. That like, sounds so bad. No, he actually, it was one of his serve. It was like a mass. So then he was, he was giving, I mean, he was holding a mass. He was giving yes, a mass. Was square. Okay. Is that what he do? He hold, yeah. Is that yes. <laughs> yes. It's not called him showing himself. It's not. <laughs> no, real. He started worship by driving around or riding so around in the, the postmobile. Processional, you ride on a golf cart around the ground. It's not a golf cart. He did show himself to the world. He was driving around on the golf cart, waving and shaking hands and making sure everybody felt welcome. And I made him feel welcome as well. He was like, you know what? In a few years, I'm about to make civil unions a thing because I met Brandon Thomas. Oh, wow. That's powerful. It is. That's it's the powerful. Holy Ghost. I'm trying to tell y'all the same Holy Ghost is working on Mitch McConnell's hands. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so I want to switch gears a little bit um, and have a different conversation. Maybe it's it's a related conversation, but a little bit different. Um, I've always been really intrigued by, perhaps more accurately concerned with, the ways that religious and or theological um, language is used in politics. And this is not a new thing. It's kind of baked into the foundations of American democracy. The U.S. Constitution is filled with religious undertones that make a lot of assumptions about who and what should be valued. I mean, if you just read the preamble, it sounds religious. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure tranquility or peace, to promote the welfare or happiness and health of the people, and to secure the blessings of liberty and freedom. Um, you know, that's why we're setting up the democracy. That's what the forefathers said, the founding fathers said. Um, they're not my forefathers, um, but it's baked in. And it's, I don't think it's because these folks were Christians or dedicated to being faithful, but it was because without the religious and or theological language of Christianity, American democracy could not substantiate itself. It needed a host. It needed uh, to form a symbiotic relationship with another entity. And it found that entity in religion broadly, and I guess Christianity in particular, what do we make of that? Brandon, I think these are really interesting questions that you're raising, particularly about you know which comes first, which is primary, whether that's religion or democracy and how that um, kind of plays itself out. I mean, to me, the idea of Western liberal democracy just doesn't even make sense. Like it, 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 it had no chance of emerging in the world without this underlying set of religious convictions. Mm. Um, and to me, the, the primary religious conviction uh, is about the inherent dignity or, or sacredness of all people, right? That is sort of a cornerstone of democracy. Why have a representative democracy if we don't think other people's opinions uh, matter or if their dignity is sort of baked in? And I, I think we've frankly forgotten how radical of an idea that is in human history. I mean, it's, it's rooted within this Judeo-Christian tradition of agape, unconditional love of the other. Um, even in Genesis, when we talk about, you know, how people are made in the image of God, but really at no point in history was there a political system built around that idea that all people mattered. Yeah. Oh, did you just say all lives matter? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what I heard. No, he didn't say uh, that. He didn't say that. <laughs> wow. But really, <laughs> no, the, these foundations are theological, right? This is what King C.T. Vivian, Bernard Lafayette, uh, and many others in the civil rights movement were leaning on uh, when they initiated that movement. This is why their message was so effective because they were trained preachers in the Christian tradition. So they ultimately called America to the carpet using the very language it borrowed from Christianity. Yeah, and and that's exactly what Reverend William Barber is continuing um, to do today um, through the Moral Monday movement and the uh, the Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, the Moral Monday movement um, has reclaimed the word moral, and and it is this fusion building that Reverend Barber talks about. It is pulling in people who you wouldn't normally put in a room together. Whatever your faith is, you're showing up in the same place and saying we are committed to a world that is better because of our faith. Certainly, Christianity is at its underpinning because R William Barber is 
deeply and unabashedly Christian, as is Reverend uh, Liz Theodaris, who also works with him on the Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. But they are deeply rooted in in that foundation. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, Reverend Barber and all that he stands for. He's probably the one preacher I can still listen to on a regular basis and not kind of roll my eyes. Uh, so I love Reverend Barber, uh, but I want to push a little further here. So like on the one end of the spectrum, we've got the uh, sort of recent Moral Monday movement, the Contemporary Poor People's Campaign, uh, Reverend Barber, the progressive liberal Christians, and a history that harkens back to King, C.T. Vivian, and the others you've named, Sam. But now we've also got the original moral movement, um, if you will, the moral majority with Jerry Falwell and the religious uh, or Christian right in the 1980s that perhaps was a response in some ways to the civil rights movement of the 60s in very different ways, at least different from my perspective. Both movements attempt to advance certain political agendas utilizing religious or theological language, the language of Christianity. Um, It has, but not that Christians own theological language, but it just so happens that their language is Christian uh, from my vantage point. It has become the norm in our society um, to the point that at times it's really um, incredibly difficult to distinguish between religious commitments and political agendas. Um, On both ends of the spectrum though, you get folks who are working to legislate and or maybe enact um, certain political agendas assumedly as a result of their commitment to faith. Yeah, Brandon, I, I hear the um, the connection that you're making, and I, and I think you're right. I mean, clearly, um, both religious movements are looking to Scripture, looking to claims of faith to sort of build a political agenda. But I, I would uh, sort of push back a little bit and say I, I don't think we can make a moral equivalency between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, if you look at the history of the moral majority and the religious right. I mean, it, it's it's self-consciously a movement built around the consolidation of power, right? So you have to look at its history and the way that it dovetails with the Southern strategy and really intentionally stoking racial animus in this country for the sake of, of winning votes. I mean, so I see what you're saying about how both of those movements are drawing on religious language, but they're doing it for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their ultimate outcomes are, of course, radically different from each other as well. Right. I mean, Barber isn't pushing for a particular party, but he is pushing a, a gospel that's or a, a mission that's related in this gospel understanding um, of what is right. And in fact, he says it's not what is right left or right, but what is right or wrong. Yeah, we have a clip. Let's play that. But there have also always been people who stood together to stir what Sister Dorothy Day called a revolution of the heart and what Dr. King called a radical revolution of values. I say to you tonight that some issues are not left versus right or liberal versus conservative. They are right versus wrong. The irony about that clip is that it's actually from the Democratic National Convention. However, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying there's an outcome. There's an outcome to his language. It's democratic. When, when, when we start having this conversation about whether our faith informs our politics or whether our politics informs our faith, uh, I really don't see a difference. It's the, the, to me, the two are the same. As Brandon noted, there's an inevitable path to which the Poor People's Campaign leads at this time. It's hard to listen to Barber, take him seriously, 
and vote Republican. Uh, so there's an implicit message. My question is, what does this mean for each of us? So how do we live out? Um, how do we live out one, our faith per se, and our political commitments? How do we, how do we live those out? And is there a distinction? Yeah, for me, it's all about faith. My faith is the lens through which I see everything. So I, I don't look at them as something that are conflated, that this is my faith and political convictions. I don't see them as being the same. Everything that I do is rooted in what my faith is. Um, that inevitably has political outcomes. I think people should be fed. I think people should be housed. I think people should have health care. This is interesting. And so for me, I don't, I agree with you on some levels, Katie. I, I don't necessarily think they are the same, but I do think they're so inextricably linked um, that it's hard for us to imagine one without the other. And so without them being the same, I think that we have created a society and a world um, where one, you can't have one without the other. You know, it's, 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 it's an interesting concept and I don't, I don't really know if I can completely articulate it at this very moment, but I just think that there is a link between faith and politics, um, the way that we have shaped our society um, that, makes, that makes it impossible to separate the two. As I reflect on this question, I keep coming back to uh, the address that Pope Francis gave to a joint session of Congress, I think in 2016, 2017, something like that. Um, it was this huge gathering, you know, similar to the State of the Union. Every uh, legislator, every congressperson in Washington all gathered in this one room. And you expect, as an American, uh, to see something very similar to the State of the Union address, where the president will make a comment and you see half the room, you know, stand up and cheer and applaud loudly and the other half sort of sit, you know, angrily with their arms crossed and, and not move, not budge, not smile, not applause. I was struck watching Pope Francis in a single sentence, you could see half the room get excited and then in an instant, shrink back down and the other side of the room stand up and applaud. And what that demonstrated to me is the complexity of the Christian life lived in public. Um, you know, so the classic example that comes to mind for me from this address of Pope Francis, um, he talks about a, a consistent life ethic. And so he talks about uh, the sanctity of unborn children and you see lots of conservatives stand and applaud and get excited to hear this sort of uh, unabashedly pro-life uh, statement. And then in the exact same sentence, he says, if, if life is sacred, then we have to view the death penalty as, as barbaric and inhumane. And you see liberals stand up and get really excited. So to me, the question is, what's primary? What, what drives the other? And, and Katie, what you said earlier, does resonate with me. I think I would identify first as a Christian and then second as an American or a liberal or a progressive. My faith comes first, but there are ways in which that faith does create, I think, real meaningful tension uh, within the political conversations that are so prevalent in our country today. I don't think the Christian life just falls neatly into progressive or conservative categories. It's bigger than that. It's more complicated than that. 
So friends, confession time. We have tried to have this conversation at least three times now, and it's always been great. Um, But it's also been the case that at least we found that these questions about faith and politics really do hit at, um, at least for me, a really deep, instinctual human level. And so the conversation has been 60 to 75 minutes. And because we don't want you all to have to listen to that in this format, um, we are trying yet again to record a wrap to this session. If you're interested in the longer conversations, we encourage you to go over to patreon.com and support us and we'll be releasing content there. But for now, to um, wrap this conversation up, I want to invite each of us to kind of think about um, all that we've talked about so far. So we you know, live in this society, this world in America where um, faith and politics are related. Each of us approaches that differently. But I'm curious. Um, I wonder if each of us can, one, sort of identify where we are in terms of faith. If you're a Christian, Christian adjacent, Christian humanist, agnostic, wherever you are right now, just name that. And then based on that um, and considering the other two conversations we've had that aren't going to get into the episode, um, what are you taking with you and um, how are you going to approach I guess the question that I would ask is how are you going to approach being faithful in the midst of this current political climate and the world, all of these things considered said differently, what emotions, feelings, thoughts um, come up with, come up for you as well. You know, I I tend to identify myself as a Christian humanist. I think that the only way we make this kind of vertical connection to God is through this horizontal connection with each other. That's the only way. It's the only way that we have the ability, the language, the anything to connect with God on any level that that is understandable to us is through um, our connection with each other. Uh, that's a that's a whole nother episode to unpack all of that. But um, so for me, it's 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 almost necessary to tear down some of our current systems and structures, whether those are political, whether those are ecclesial, um, with some of those fears of what's left, we won't have anything. But then also coming from this tradition, African-American tradition where, you know, that we didn't have the luxury of having that fear. You know, it was like tear this shit down because we already don't have anything. You know, and so and so it's kind of like I, that that fear can't motivate me. Yeah, we might not have anything left. And in 300 years, we may replace one one uh, power um, structure with another and, and recreate the same vacuum, recreate the same system um, that we have. But I think we owe it because the system has failed us so drastically. So, so much we owe it. Um, to challenge these systems in ways that if they do come down and we have to rebuild, um, then we do so, and we do so with the hope that we can that we can build as as the the founding fathers say a more perfect union. Um, so yeah, I think I've wrestled with this entire conversation because I've been trying to figure out what it is that we're trying to get to, and I think that we don't necessarily know what it is that we're trying to get to. I, I'm not sure that. Um, it's easy to frame the question. The first time that we talked, I, I could not get to the question at all that you were asking, um, Brandon. And I think that's because um, we hear and approach it from so many different ways. Ever since I came to seminary, I have started to 
call myself a liberal evangelical. Um, and I, I'm a universalist in that. The evangelical part for me comes from this ability to claim what I believe, to claim that um, that that Jesus's presence in my life, not just in scripture, not just in the church, but actually in palpable ways in my life means something. I think that progressive Christians are um, frequently incapable of being able to articulate their faith. And so for me, the best way of articulating that is to call myself a liberal evangelical. Um, and so, and I have said this before, everything that I, I, I read, everything I do, um, every way I try to be in the world um, is grounded in my faith. Um, I have been long disillusioned by the church, and I think in the text conversations that you and I have had, Brandon, since we started to attempt to have these <laughs> this podcast past podcast conversation, I've realized that um, I have lo- have a longstanding uh, frustration um, with government and its inability to get anything done. I think the government has shown us that they are able to to dismantle anything and everything. Um, and so I think I have as much frustration with our country and now, uh, with the government now, um, than I ever have. And I think that I leave this conversation, which I never would have engaged a theoretical <laughs> discussion about this or many other things, but I leave this conversation just far more um, concerned uh, for the state of the country and um, uh, far more concerned about how it is that we um, somehow unify, I'm making air quotes, this disparate uh, population with uh, disparate ways of being in the world. I think what I'm taking away from all of this is um, an acknowledgement that, um, one, this is all personal. Um, I think what womanist scholars, um, black women have taught me is that the personal is, a, is also political and that it's impossible to take out um, what you think, feel, experience uh, from the conversation. And so I'll always have to have this in every other conversation through the lens of being a black gay man in America and that manifests in particular, and that makes my political commitments and my faith commitments uh, manifest in a very particular way. I am identify as somebody who um, is deeply formed by the black Christian church or black Christian churches. And I identify as an independent politically. Um, and honestly, I'm just not a person who's extremely hopeful for the church. And I'm not a person who, um, even though the church has meant so much to me, I'm not someone who um, thinks that I'm hopeful for the church or the American democracy um, more broadly. So um, I think what I am doing is trying to be very intentional about um, not conflating my faith and political commitments. And I'm also trying to be intentional about um, Acknowledging the ways in which democracy in our political system 
is a religion in and of itself and to figure out how I worship at that throne. And even though I don't find myself in churches most Sundays, I, I stream a little bit in COVID, but um, I still need to figure out the ways that my Christian upbringing formed me and influenced me. And I think I'm just trying to continue to be aware of that and not do so and, and not let that be a mindless thing that just happens below the surface because that has implications for the world. I can think of maybe five or six completely different strains of thought uh, and ways I might respond to your question, Brandon. Um, I would identify myself as a a person of faith, and um, one of the sort of traditional understandings of of faith is uh, a a belief in and a commitment to things that are not yet seen. Um, One of my professors in seminary, uh, as a professor of preaching, said, um, don't forget, every time you preach the gospel, you are making a claim uh, about something that no one in the world sees around them ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea kind of really stuck with me. Um, and I think that's relevant to how I think about um, the history of our country. I mean, I, I, I am someone who um, is drawn to the ideals and the claims and the aspirations that are baked into uh, the idea of America. Um, and I find myself yearning for that. And I find myself still really interested in and committed to, uh, those notions of, um, of genuine freedom, of genuine justice, um, of a shared vision of, of who we can be, um, not despite our differences, but in the midst of those differences. I think the truth is, you know, you don't have to look very hard or think very deeply to realize that we've never embodied those ideals in any meaningful way. Mm. Um, we've never even gotten close to doing that. And so those claims in some ways just feel so vapid, so empty. And they are, I mean, I, I, they don't just feel that way. They are. And yet I continue to have a, a, a sort of a, a faith in them that we could construct a, a, a political body that we could construct a community or a country um, that really did embody those ideals. Um, you know, to me, that looks a lot like King's notion of the beloved community. I think that's probably the, the closest that we as a country have ever gotten to having a shared language uh, and a shared vision for what that might look like. Um, but I do find myself, you know, still really drawn to some of those ideas, recognizing that the people who first put them forth were deeply flawed and frankly not committed to them in any meaningful personal way. And that we've never as a country really uh, risen to the occasion. But I do find my faith um, present in, in my political claims that we could create a community not based on a struggle for power, uh, not based on animosity towards one another, but on genuine reconciliation, genuine love for one another, um, a genuine kind of community. Folks, there you have it. Um, Hopefully you are taking something with you um, from this conversation. If you happen to be a person who's hopeful, hopefully you heard a little bit of hope. If you happen to be a person who's hopeless, I'm certain you heard a little bit of that, (laughs) 
But uh, what we <laughs> here at the Mourners Venture are committed to is continuing in dialogue and continuing in relationship, right? It's not just about dialogue, but it's about the relationships that undergird those because it's the relationship that makes dialogue possible so that we can see where we're bumping up against one another, where we have um, some consistency in our ways of thinking, but also dissonance in our ways of thinking. Um, but I do believe, I continue to believe that if we continue to show up um, and commit to that relationship and those and those dialogues, um, then we'll hopefully get a little bit closer to it. I'm on vote, even though I'm still kind of like whatever, and I'm going to keep telling the church how it can be better, even though I'm not hopeful for that. <laughs> and maybe in those actions, we'll get a little closer to this vision of a world where everybody belongs, everybody's safe, and everybody has their core needs met. Let's take a break. Sit tight, friends. When we come back, Malcolm will have a conversation with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Malcolm David. Friends, I cannot imagine a person more perfectly situated to continue this conversation that we're having today than our next guest, Reverend Jonathan Wilson Hargrove. Jonathan is a renowned author, preacher, and activist based in Durham, North Carolina. He's currently the director of the School for Conversion, which works to cultivate unlikely friendships and build beloved community in the Walltown neighborhood of Durham. Along with William Barber and others, he's helped to organize the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, and he's been a central leader in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Jonathan is also the author of roughly a dozen books, including Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Y'all, I honestly cannot recommend that book enough for folks who are, in, who are interested in this conversation we're having today. So we'll have a link to it in our notes. Check it out if you want to dive deeper into these questions about faith and public life. Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, welcome to the Mourner's Bench. We are so delighted to have you. Oh my, thank you so much. It's good to be with you and good to be on the Mourner's Bench. It's been uh, some time since the uh, good, faithful deacons and deaconesses of the church have brought me to the Mourner's Bench, but I am a Baptist and a revivalist my whole life long. So I'm familiar with the bench, my brother. I want to start um, just by kind of talking in in broad strokes about one of the ideas that I hear kind of over and over again in, in your writing and in your public speaking is that the gospel that is proclaimed by lots of primarily white evangelical Christians in America today uh, really isn't good news for anybody. I'm wondering if we can just start with you kind of unpacking some of those claims and giving us a kind of a broad overview of how you see uh, Christianity being used and, and misused in American culture today. Well, thank you. Let me begin as a uh, Christian and as someone who's, uh, you know, spent my uh, life studying theology uh, just by saying that uh, everything that you said I've said is true and that I say these things as a Christian. <laughs> and I say them as a Christian who believes uh, that evil only can work in this world that God created uh, by corrupting what is good. Um, and so my understanding of the uh, sin 
of white supremacy in this story that uh, I was born into, this story that we are all caught up in together, is that it has been parasitic on uh, Christianity and that um, uh, therefore a central responsibility of uh, trying to follow Jesus and be Christian in the American story is to untangle white supremacy from the faith, which has been twisted and distorted and corrupted by that lie. So that's the work that I've been trying to do, uh, both with reconstructing the gospel and uh, with revolution of values. How did how did we get here? Um, what's the what's the historical background there? I, I don't. I think a lot of times people don't realize that, that these categories didn't exist before, right? That these are that these were actually legal categories that grew out of the experience of a plantation economy being born in this place. Um, the the case law here is a story about a guy named John Punch. He ran away from his uh, indenture with some uh, lighter skinned brothers. <laughs> there were a lot of people who were indentured. Um, Brother Punch uh, was uh, um, a, a descendant of Africans, uh, had darker skin. And in the um, um, decision about how to punish these men for their, uh, uh, you know, walking away from the terms of their indenture, uh, well, the um, white folks were given the opportunity to complete the indenture with added years. Uh, the African American man was given uh, perpetual uh, servitude, and uh, this begins to be uh, the uh, um, development of racial identity. Uh, not, not, not. I think this is important for people to realize. Not as some sort of like cultural, you know, recognition that people are from different places. You know. Uh, like different foods, have different family traditions, whatever. No, this this was this was about basing the fact that you could own a person as chattel property on the color of their skin, and that's what developed here. And as it developed, um, uh, Christian people uh, grappled with this and realized that uh, it would be. Um, a defiance of the system that sustained much of their life to oppose this. And so uh, even where their moral instincts told them that this was wrong, um, they uh, compromised and accommodated themselves to it. Uh, think about the Virginia Baptists who met early 18th century and said, you know, based on their faith that no one could own a fellow human being. And then some of those preachers, you know, went back to their congregations. And of course, the, you know, largest uh, tithers in their congregations were people who owned other human beings. And they informed them that uh, this was the uh, incorrect reading of uh, the text. And so at their next assembly, they changed their mind. Um, I mean, the, the, these things are uh, a matter of record. And what happened with Christianity was then that the people who were paid to um, represent the church and to reason on behalf of the church uh, increasingly uh, twisted and distorted the faith to make it uh, accommodate itself, to work along with uh, a system that enslaved other people. 
And that um, uh, led to uh, a distinctly um, American form of Christianity that uh, has slaveholder religion all wrapped up in it. I'm struck by how many um, organizations that are at the, the forefront of the social justice movement today um, have sometimes explicitly and, and purposefully um, disaffiliated from religious communities. Um, you know, I, I think uh, an example of that, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the way that it sort of embraces uh, a decentralized leadership structure, but also has, has chosen um, to not, you know, explicitly align itself with uh, the black church tradition that was really uh, an incubator and helped to, to nurture the civil rights movement of our parents and, and grandparents' generation. And I share your conviction. Um, I'd, I go to uh, a, a primarily uh, white United Methodist Church here in Atlanta, and I oftentimes think it's the people that I'm sitting next to in the pews and myself, I include myself in this, I need to learn what the gospel looks like in action from those who are beyond the walls of, of this church. Um, I wonder if, if you can just talk a little bit more about uh, what specifically you think uh, church folk might, might stand to learn. Uh, what, are, what are we missing and, and where might we look uh, for these lessons that we, that we need? Well, one of the reasons I wrote Revolution of Values is that I've just met so many people through the Poor People's Campaign who are directly impacted by issues from, you know, immigration to environmental, you know, degradation to uh, uh, the struggle for women's rights. Um, and, I, and in meeting these folks, I recognized um, that often they are motivated in the struggle by their faith and that um, whatever their faith tradition, uh, their struggle was um, illuminating for me what the biblical text was, was talking about, you know, that, um, you know, that this story of a people, you know, who were called uh, to, to together uh, to live a life with God and, uh, were in bondage in Egypt and were, you know, called out of that bondage into uh, a, a liberative way that was supposed to be good news to the world. But, you know, uh, there's often a dynamic in the story of how um, the people who think that they're insiders and have got it all figured out don't get it. So that, that you got to, you know, you got to hear it again, as Jesus said, you know, remember the widow at Zarephat. Zarephat's not in Israel, she was the one that had faith. Remember, you know, Naaman the Syrian, he's not an insider. He comes and he has to um, show, show people what faith looks like. Uh, that's the sermon, you know, that got Jesus almost thrown off the cliff in his own hometown. When he, when he reminds the people, you know, after being celebrated for proclaiming God's good news, he reminds the people, look, it's often the folks outside who get this good news better than we do. And of course, that had been the experience uh, at Jesus's very birth, that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't even the scripture scholars on their own who figured out that, you know, Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. The, 
the Magi from the East had to show up and ask, you know, where, where's this Messiah of yours to be born? Uh, because, you know, best we can see from looking at the stars and such, uh, there's something happening here. So uh, it seems to me that this is all, all uh, through the scriptures and that in some ways those parts of scripture jump out and speak to us when we spend time with people who, um, I, you know, I think this is another just basic scriptural principle that, that can help direct us that, for, you know, from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis, you know, the, the, the story of the uh, Abraham's family all the way through, uh, God hears the cries of people who are suffering, right? Uh, that's Hagar and Ishmael, that's Israel down in Egypt, that's, um, you, you know, that's, um, that's the widow at Zarephath, that's, um, that's who Jesus is drawn to. Um, it's just such a, it's such a, re a repeating theme that God hears the cries of those who are suffering and that God acts in this world on behalf of those who are suffering. Um, and, you know, we sit in the church all the time and pray and ask God to be present and say we want to discern how God's at work in the world. And I, sometimes I just get the feeling God is, is probably, you know, wondering why we don't just do what God does, you know, listen to the voice of those who are suffering. Uh, and when you hear those voices, show up <laughs> and, and and try to pay attention to uh, what God is already doing in the midst of those struggles. That's that, that's where I see really encouraging and powerful things happening that can demonstrate to the church uh, what it means for us to be church. You know, um, to, to just listen, who is crying out? You mentioned Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, 25 million Americans marched in the streets this summer uh, to say Black Lives Matter. Um, that's an incredible thing. It's reflective of a cry that obviously many people feel whether they directly are experiencing the suffering or they know someone uh, who is. And you know, it's not—it's not just black people. It's black and white and brown and you know, native folks um, standing together, saying say, saying that there is systemic racism and injustice in this country, and that—I mean, that to me, that's a prayer. If millions of people walk out into the streets and cry out, "This is wrong." Well, that's prayer. That's begging, you know, God, or if, you know, if you don't know what to call it, <laughs> something <laughs> to, 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 to change things. Um, I think if the church is present and present to that prayer, uh, we can get a pretty clear sense of uh, what our vocation is in this moment. Uh, and especially in light of this, you know, history we've been talking about, we can really grapple with the reality 
that if there is this systemic racism that's pressing down on the bodies of people, and for 400 years, we have been in a very real and active way, a host body for white supremacy, then we have serious work to do, both in terms of unlearning those habits of white supremacy and slaveholder religion that are within us, and in terms of you know learning how to practice an active anti-racist gospel, you know, in a world that is is fighting, uh, in, in which there is a struggle to uh, uh, overcome racism. I think I think that's the moment we're in, and I think it's a critical critical role that the church has to play uh, when we when we get down to the to the root of it. For me, the reality is that white supremacy has created a systemic inequality that is unsustainable. Um, it, 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 it does and has for a long time uh, created violence and it's unsustainable because it will create more violence. Um, it's violence between people. It's increasingly, you know, a violence toward the earth that's unsustainable. There's all kinds of ways, right, that this is a, a, a story uh, in which we're being propelled over an edge. So that's what I mean when I, when I say it's unsustainable. Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, thank you so much for your time. I, I hope that you enjoyed being on the mourner's bench this morning and maybe the, uh, the spirit moved you in the way that it did me. Uh, well, we <laughs> didn't get to the shouting. <laughs> We've been here for a while. <laughs> well. There's that music you were talking about. That one will carry with me through the rest of the day. Jonathan, thank you so much. We're grateful. Good to be with you. All right. Take care. Take care. All right, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. How about wow. that? That was that was something that was amazing. I love the interview, David. Kudos I, man, on such a great job. I, I feel like I could have talked to that dude for like six hours. I, for real. And did. <laughs> there was so much more we couldn't share today. So we're going to have a second episode or a second pour, if you will, this Thursday. The second pour will include more from our conversation about faith and politics and more of Malcolm's interview with Jonathan. But for now, as Porky Pig would say, that's all, folks. <laughs> I'm corny, but you love it. In addition to this week's second pour on Thursday, make sure you plan to tune in next Tuesday as we welcome another benchmate and friend of the lab, Carlos Cardoza Orlandi. We'll have a discussion about honoring the dead and the possibilities that remembering and revering our ancestors present to us in this current political moment. You all know we're just getting started. We're grateful to each of you for taking the time to listen. You should continue the conversation online by posting your favorite moments from today's episode. Just make sure you tag us so we see it. And finally, if you're enjoying what you hear, head over to patreon.com slash the Lab and slide us a little love offering. We're grateful for you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday for a second pour and next Tuesday. Have y'all seen Mitch McConnell's hand? <laughs> <laughs>